0: Welcome to the New Schools Podcast. Prior to the pandemic, our next guest decided with his wife and three teenagers to leave behind work, school, and even the family dogs to travel the world on a modest budget. His book titled, We Came, We Saw, We Left, chronicles nine months across six continents and comes to us recommended by the New York Times. Charles Wheelan has written quite a few books, including a New York Times bestseller throughout his career as author, political reformer, and professor at the Rockefeller Center at Dartmouth College. There he teaches courses on education policy, healthcare, tax policy, and income inequality. He also teaches the practicum in global policy leadership in which he travels with students to examine an international policy topic. In years past, the class has visited India, Israel, Jordan, Liberia, Turkey, Rwanda, Madagascar, Northern Ireland, Brazil, and Colombia. He was also a senior lecturer in public policy at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Charles was the Midwest correspondent for The Economist from 1997 to 2002 and has written articles for the Chicago Tribune The New York Times and The Wall Street Journal. After publishing his 2013 book, The Centrist Manifesto, which calls for a new political party of the middle, Charles co-founded Unite America, a political organization dedicated to bridging the growing partisan divide. In 2013, he also published the New York Times bestseller, Naked Statistics, Stripping the Dread from the Data, but today we'll focus on his epic gap year adventure with his family, covering topics like how to create a homeschool curriculum while traveling, how to plan a trip with so many options and competing visions, what to look out for, and what may not need so much concern. Your host is Shannon Falkenstein, speaking today with Charles Whelan.
1: Hello, Charles Wheeler, and thank you for being on the New Schools Podcast with us today.
2: Well, it's good to be with you. Thanks.
1: Great. So, the New Schools Podcast is made for families and educators who may feel frustrated or limited by conventional education or are inspired to do something way more fun during their children's K through 12 years. It's part primer and part survey of the possibilities that other people are trying, and my role is the curious parent who wants to know more. We've interviewed folks who have started their own schools, such as an as Acton Academy, which is what I did, And also liberated learners, unschoolers, blended learning advocates, learning simulation developers, parent coaches, homeschoolers, microschoolers, and world schoolers, which is why we are so excited to talk to you today, Mr. Whelan. Uh, Audience, you may not know, but in addition to taking nine months off to travel the world with his wife and three teenagers, and then writing a book about it called We Came, We Saw, We Left... Mr. Whelan is also a best-selling author who writes about economics, is a Dartmouth professor and a centrist political reformer. But today we're gonna focus on his epic gap year adventure with his family. So Charles, would you give us a quick overview of your trip and the book, and then we can dive in with some deeper questions for the audience? Sure,
2: the short description is nine months, six continents, three teenagers. I mean, that's it's kind of what you need to know we traveled the world our family is five although it was not always five on the trip it was a fluid group we can talk a little bit about that our middle daughter joined us in progress we had some friends travel with us my oldest daughter who was 18 at the time left and traveled with friends and came back so she could be more independent and so on but the the gist of it is that our family of five left in September of 2016 and headed south from New Hampshire. Well, actually first we went to visit my family in Chicago, but then headed to Colombia, and made our way south through South America for about four months and then across the Pacific to New Zealand and Australia, then headed north to Southeast Asia and west to India, across the ocean to Africa, back to India, to the Republic of Georgia, to Europe and then home. So kind of around the world, nine month journey and of course, The the kids were learning because you can't help but learn while you're traveling around the world. But of course, we were were legally obligated to homeschool two of the three. Um, The oldest was taking a gap year, although arguably she may have absorbed the most of any of them through her kind of informal learning and just having time to read.
1: Nice. Well, yeah, I was just going to ask you how, um, because we're focused on education, tell us a little bit about the day to day learning on the road. Did you, it sounds like you did have to keep to some kind of a curriculum. And then also, I'm sure the journey was the curriculum. But tell us a little bit more about like what was a typical day or week of learning like?
2: We did have some legal obligations. We're in the state of New Hampshire. Live free or die is on the license plate. So, It's not a terribly rigorous homeschooling requirement, but there were certain things we had to do. So as I said, for my oldest daughter, we had nothing to do because she was on a gap year, but I actually felt that it was really important for me to make reading suggestions. She's a natural reader. She's an intellectually curious person. So for her, it was mostly about offering her books, novels, nonfiction, kind of other things that would allow her to grow as a person, but no legal obligations. My son, who's the youngest, he was in eighth grade. He was 13 at the time. There wasn't a whole lot we had to do. The state required a few things. But he really did need to learn geometry. That was the math. And you can be lost later if you've had no exposure to it. And I felt he really needed to learn how to write going into high school. I spend my life writing. I see a lot of college students who don't have a great aptitude for writing. So that was above and beyond what the state required. We just wanted to make sure that he... New geometry because the state required it, that he could write. And then I wanted him to be able to kind of connect all the things that he was studying. We did some history. He had to do World War I. But I wanted him to, to put the historical things he was learning in school in context with the places that we were visiting. So at the end of the trip, I just kind of had him go through American history as he understood it. And it was really interesting. We didn't do too much during the the colonization period. So it was mostly 20th century history for him to kind of explain World War I and how that made people resistant to getting involved in World War II and how the Cold War unfolded at the end of World War II and the Cold War explained a lot in Vietnam that was not otherwise inexplicable. And so it was just really great for him to see that arc of history and the connections and all of that. And then my middle daughter was the toughest. She was a junior in high school. There were some fairly serious requirements. So she had, there's an online education system in New Hampshire called the Virtual Learning Academy or something of that nature. VLAX is the acronym. And she really did not like her VLAX courses. So we had to get her through them just so she could pass the year. But we also, that's an important stage in her life. We also had to kind of help her mature emotionally and intellectually so that by senior year, she was ready to apply for college and other things. Um, We also had to kind of nurture her ability as a writer Turns out she's a great writer. So so each kid really had kind of different requirements as we traveled.
1: I can imagine that that would be a challenge. And also because at the teenage, the teen kind of um, impulse is to separate a little bit, right, to form independence from your parents. And now I imagine you're thrown together in planes and trains and hotel rooms and experiences. We don't really know anyone else. So how, what, like, can you talk a little bit more about that?
2: It was was basically like COVID before COVID. We, (laughs) We were doing our quarantine. We just happened to be moving around the world. So we were in small Airbnb apartments, long bus rides, cheap airlines, So yes, it was a lot of together time and I think a lot of, we never imagined that the rest of the world would be doing the same together time and a lot of the same online schooling. So I I think my original description COVID before COVID is not a bad shorthand description of what the family dynamics were like.
1: Wow, yeah, I can totally see that. So tell us about, you know, I just, I, my husband and I really wanna do this in 2023. We have a lot of friends scattered around Europe and that that was our idea. I lived in Switzerland for four years in my early twenties. And that was when history came alive, right? Like history in school is like a textbook and whatever. And then when I went to Europe, I was like, oh, now I understand. Kind of like your experience with your son. Um, So that's our dream. And I imagine a lot of people in the audience have this dream. So tell us more about the practicalities, like how long did you plan? How did you budget this? What is the point where you feel like your plan is, you know, that's enough planning and then you need to allow for some flexibility and spontaneity.
2: The paradox is everybody asks, when did you start planning your flights and where are you going to stay? Like all the travel stuff. And of course that's all easy, all the planning. And I would say we started many years ahead of time oh. is in the leaving. It is How do you fund this? How do you extricate yourself from your day-to-day responsibilities? How do you find the window that is most appropriate for your family? So if you've got one child, it's relatively easy. You kind of decide when's it best for that one child. If you've got three, then we had a whole bunch of constraints. At the top end, we said, okay, once Katrina goes to college, she's not coming back to do this. So it's got to be before she enrolls in college, but we had the gap year to play with. She was very excited about that. In terms of CJ, he was the easiest because, to my mind, anything before high school was fairly malleable. We could make it up. High school is tough. So we, didn't, we said we didn't want any child to miss their first year of high school or their senior year, first year because it's an, an important adapting time, last year because it's so, so you don't want to be missing your prom and your graduation. So by the time we kind of did all those constraints, there was only one year that was going to work. And so that was the year we picked. So it's 2016, 2017 or nothing. So you pick the time, then you say, okay, we've got jobs and we hope to come back to the jobs." So that probably the most, and we're privileged in many, many respects, but we're not super rich. The real source of our privilege is having jobs that we could leave and come back to. And that's, a, that's a really lucky thing to be able to do. And as educators, I was able to just take a straight up leave of absence from the college. They wouldn't pay me, but it doesn't matter as long as I have a job when I come back. And my wife is a high school, was a high school teacher. Now she's a principal and they wouldn't guarantee anything. but she teaches math. And that's such a scarcity subject that she could be sure they're like, yeah, we'll definitely hire you when you come back. We can't promise you, but yes, we'll definitely hire you. So, okay. That means we'll have jobs when we come back. It's not actually that expensive. Expensive. Like the big cost of the doing the trip is not the outlays. The food's cheaper in the rest of the world than where it is. Housing's cheaper because we rented at our house. We don't drive our cars while we're traveling. We don't buy clothes. I don't play golf. Like traveling's cheaper than staying home. But you are giving up nine months of income. So the big hit is foregone income. It's not, everybody gets backwards. All the hard planning is leaving, not traveling and all the expenses and not working, not in what you're spending while you're on the road. So the big thing we then had to decide is, as it wasn't a decision, we just had to rent out our house because it creates an enormous flow of income that became our housing budget. We rented out our house. We're lucky to be in a college town. We don't have a huge house, but it's very easily rented because there are a lot of people coming through. So once we rented our house, to our in-laws, which is a whole other story. <laughs> we just took that monthly rent, divided by 30, and that became our daily housing budget. And from there, we budgeted a daily amount for other things. You know, what could we afford in terms of travel, daily travel, other? So now we have a budget, we have a time frame. we have renters, we have constraints about when we can leave and when we're going to come back because of our jobs. And only then did we buy our first ticket. And after that, it's really, you know, we bought a ticket to Columbia and that's about it. There are a few other things. Once you're moving and you have a budget, all the rest of it falls into place.
1: Okay. Wow. Well, that's really enlightening. Thank you very much for those details. It kind of makes it seem harder and easier at the same time.
2: I think that's a good way of describing it. It's harder than you think and easier than you think, but the hard stuff's not the hard, it's, you know, it's not figuring out where you're going to stay in Quito. It's figuring out who's going to rent your house.
1: Right, right. Okay, okay, good. It seems like a lot of those decisions end up kind of making themselves like, I mean, by force. Who's going to
2: take the dogs? Right? Yeah. Like you got to be two dogs. you got to find a house. I mean, a lot of these little things that require yeah. a great deal of care.
1: I can see that. Um, so tell us about how did – but did you kind of have a rough – roadmap of where you wanted to go or and and did the did your kids also were they involved in choosing the itinerary
2: yes and yes the roadmap was determined by a couple things one was just the seasons since we we're living in september why not take advantage of spring in the southern hemisphere and if we do that then by coincidence when it becomes winter in the southern hemisphere we're moving back into southeast asia where it's warm and then lo and behold, we're coming through Europe in spring again. So why not take you know, three springs basically in one calendar year? We had a few pins in the map. You mentioned having friends. We had mm-hmm. friends in Mumbai. We had a place to stay with parents of friends in Tasmania. We had decided that we would meet my brother and his family for Thanksgiving in the Galapagos. So we kind of put the, those pins in the map. And so now we have a rough route and pins in the map with dates attached to them. and That gave us a skeleton that we could kind of plan around. All right, well, we'll land in Cartagena in September. We have to be in the Galapagos in November. All the time in between is what we have in South America. We did buy one ticket ahead of time from Quito all the way to Auckland, New Zealand. So that gave us another parameter. We, there's some things you have to book in advance. It's not much. But we went trekking in New Zealand, which is not expensive, but you do have to book the huts along the trail far in advance. It's like national parks in the United States. The booking opens up a year ahead of time. So we had huts on certain trekking routes on certain days. So we had to be there for that. Mm -hmm. And by the time you connect those doubts, that, that gives you some fixed dates, which I think helps a lot, and then lots of flexibility in between.
1: Wow, fantastic. Okay. Great. So um what were what were your biggest challenges on the road?
2: The biggest challenges were family dynamics.
1: <laughs> and in imagine. particular,
2: the introvert extrovert divide. Oh. And again, this is probably something that other people are discovering during COVID, now that they're in close confinement with their family members. We in our family have two Fairly extreme introverts. I am one of them. Our oldest daughter, Katrina, is the other. We have one raging extrovert, CJ, the youngest, who just processes the whole world out loud in the moment. His nickname in elementary school was Wally because he had been separated from his classmates for talking too much. And allegedly, his teacher put him next to a wall and he started talking to the wall, (laughs) which gives you some sense. And then my wife and our middle daughter, they're kind of somewhere in between, modestly extroverted, but really kind of the referees between CJ, the extrovert and the introverts. And so in the beginning, when you're in close quarters, for those of us who are introverted, CJ's just talking too much. And mm-hmm. our first family meltdown happened when Katrina told him that he couldn't sit within 10 rows of her on any bus ride
1: mm-hmm. and he
2: got all upset. And of course to his problem, he's just talking if we weren't so particular, it's were the problem, not him. And this is, of course, the classic introvert, extrovert divide. If we didn't need quiet, there wouldn't be a problem with him talking. So uh, we, we had the blow up and CJ agreed that maybe he could talk less. And Katrina and I agreed that it was our responsibility to separate from the group on occasion and go to a cafe and write in our journal and get our alone time somewhere else. And that eventually resolved itself. We Many months later, at the end of the trip, we took the Myers-Briggs personality test, which kind of classifies where you are. And they put you in, there's 16 different quadrants of personality types. CJ was in one far corner of the 16 quadrants and Katrina was in the other. And it describes your preferences. And when you read those descriptions, it explained nearly every meltdown that we had. They're kind of foreordained by just the way that those personality types interact with the world.
1: Wow that's fantastic. yeah, I'm very familiar with the myers Briggs. that's that's awesome. And do you, so it seems like you guys learned a lot about yourselves and how to interact with others and what you know all that like you said, family dynamics. so you learned a lot about interpersonal skills which are so important.
2: We did and interestingly, my wife and I had learned this years ago decades ago. So we'd both taken Myers-briggs. I took it in grad school. she took it in a work environment. And we are literally opposite. So I am, uh, I'm INTP and she's whatever the opposite is. So I'm introverted, mm-hmm. she's extroverted. You know. And they actually like, when they did the assessment for her, they're like, you know, if your spouse or partner is different on one or two of these dimensions, you're gonna have things to work through. And she's like, what if we're different on all of them? And they said, <laughs> okay, you need special time. And there, there's like a little write-up on how you deal with this. And we've gotten really good at it. Like when we go to a party in the beginning, she'd say, are you having fun? And I'd say, it's great, I wanna go home. She's like, but I thought you said you were having fun. And I said, yeah, and I've had fun enough. (laughs) Which to an extrovert, it's like, you never leave while you're still having fun. But we had like long ago figured out that I just need time alone, that too many relatives will make me blow up. Like we were all good. It was just introducing the rest of the family and their personality types that required the same kind of adaptation on a larger scale.
1: Well, that's so great to be able to figure that out so rationally instead of taking it personally, which I think so many people tend to do.
2: (laughs) Well, there was a, don't get me wrong, there was a lot of taking it personally before we dealt with it rationally. Uh, okay. (laughs) There were multiple meltdowns. I've, I've neatly summarized a process that was not as neat as it may sound, but we got there.
1: Yeah, well, good. So did you ever have an experience um, where, you know, like my kids will be like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And then we do it and they're like, that was amazing. Did that happen to you on the road where you had to kind of push your kids into new experiences that maybe they were reticent about?
2: I I don't remember any of those kinds of things where we pushed them because oftentimes it would be like, well, then just stay home. I I think it was more often that we all had great experiences when we weren't anticipating them. Where, Mm -hmm. okay, we're gonna walk to the slave museum in Cartagena, but the coolest thing that we encountered was the market that we passed through on the way home that we weren't expecting. I think a lot of the learning and also just a lot of the really fun experiences were unplanned and therefore nobody resisted them because they didn't even know they were happening. I'll give you one example? One of our favorite hikes was through this patch of woods in New Zealand. It was a a nice meandering path, it was very beautiful. And then at the end of the path, it emerged on this huge river that was this aquamarine, aquamarine color with a giant waterfall on the other side. It was one of the prettiest scenes that I've ever seen. But the only reason we took that hike is that Sophie was feeling car sick and we pulled over on the side of the road and happened to see the trailhead and said, well, we can't drive for 20 minutes anyway, let's just see where that goes. And lo and behold, it led to this absolutely majestic scenery that we never would have happened upon. So I think a lot of our traveling was wandering and therefore nobody objected because they didn't really even know where we were going.
1: Wow, how fortuitous about that scene. That sounds, and so are we imagining that scene as kind of like a Lord of the Rings type type scene? Yes, a, a lot they of New filmed it
2: right. looks like Lord of the Rings. I mean, it's filmed there, so it's not oh. not a great coincidence. But yes, a, a lot of, uh, Avatar, Lord of the Rings. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of that just raw beauty.
1: Wow, how cool. So I, I feel like we're talking about a lot of, a lot of concrete details which is so important for people that want to like turn their vision into reality but let's like rise above a little bit more into the vision like what did this do for your family like you did the ultimate bucket list thing with your family in those years right before they leave like like tell us about how amazing that was it was wonderful
2: Now, I'm not, they're still teenagers. So like, they don't come home every day and say, wow, were we lucky? I mean, I think that comes (laughs) if we're lucky 20 years from now. They, They still do teenage stuff. I do think that they matured a great deal, each in their own way. I think Katrina became much more independent as a person in part because, here's a funny, so when we began traveling, she was emphatic about being independent because all of her friends had gone off to college. So here she was with her parents, Even though she's taking a gap year, she's still hanging out with her parents. Her friends are sending notes and emails about orientation at college and they're living alone in the dorm and so on. So Katrina would do these things that I would describe as like fake independence. So we go to check in at the airline and she wouldn't check in with us. She'd stand behind us and she'd hold her own passport and check in on her own. And she'd assert her independence, but like, it's just totally meaningless. Like I give my passport to my wife, like you check me in, you know, it doesn't make you an adult to check in alone on your on your airline flight. Mm-hmm. But the irony is that over the nine months, she then traveled for weeks with friends. She went off on her own, traveled alone, you know, met up with us, and then dealt with the ultimate responsibility, which is the only major health problem we had to deal with, was a flesh-eating parasite. So she got bit by a sand fly in Peru, we believe. And it was hard to diagnose what actually was wrong. But many countries later, we realized that she had leishmaniasis, which is fairly serious if untreated. She ended up flying on her own to Munich from Calcutta to get treatment. Now she had a friend who was in Munich who met her from high school, but here's a kid who started out thinking she was independent because she stood behind us in the airline line, who actually really became independent by flying to Germany and getting treatment for a serious disease on her own. So I think that's emblematic. They each had that that growth and independence from a different base. Obviously for the 13 year old, it was more just learning how to explore on his own. So that in Colombia, we let him go to the empanada lady, which was like 200 meters from where we were staying, but it was still a big deal for him to go out. By the time we got to Munich, He's riding the subway on his own. You know, Mm -hmm. I got tired at the BMW Museum. I gave him 10 euros and said, find your way home, which was just not even a big deal at that point. And then for Sophie, the middle one, who was the least academic, I think she matured the most academically over that period of time so that she was really ready to to apply for college by the time we got back. Whereas when we left, I wasn't sure she was going to pass high school.
1: Oh, wow. Wow. So I know that I I read also that you um you would take your economics students traveling also as part of learning with you. Will you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yes. So this was this experience although the 9 months was unusual, the idea of being in fairly exotic foreign places was not unusual. In part because of why we're having this conversation, which is I think that to learn, especially for public policy students, for people doing development economics, there is no substitute for just being on the ground. So way back in like 2005, I had persuaded the Dean at the University of Chicago Policy School that we ought to create a hybrid course where we would study some international topic on campus for 10 weeks, And then we would go there at the end of the term for two weeks and meet with policy experts, politicians, NGOs, other folks like that. And they would speak to us in nuanced ways about what we've been studying. That course got up and running. The one stipulation I had with the university was that my family could go along because when the kids were young, two weeks was just too long for me to be away. So my wife, Leah, and the three kids, beginning when CJ was only three years old, Would go all over the world. I mean, and we did that for maybe eight or 10 years in a row. So, you know, Katrina and Sophie were in India when they were six and three, and Rwanda and Madagascar, Brazil. So they had the experience of traveling on a low budget, because these were really low budget trips from a very young age, so much so that when I later took Katrina to Washington, DC in middle school, we checked into a Hyatt and she came running out of the bathroom in alarm and said, can I drink the water here? <laughs> she, she her all every hotel experience she'd ever had was in a place where you can't drink the water. So she is, she is associated being in a hotel with drinking bottled water. I, I went through the whole thing. So then, and, and they had proved to be very adept travelers Probably most important, we really haven't talked about the fact that we as a family do travel the same way. We're very comfortable Mm -hmm. wandering. We talked about that. The low budget thing doesn't really bother us. There's kind of a, we have to eat well, and that doesn't mean eat fancy. We all love street food. We just have Mm -hmm. to really eat food that we enjoy. We don't over-program ourselves. So we kind of do one thing a day, and that left usually afternoon for doing schoolwork, for me, keeping the blog, writing my journal, and so on. So we we knew going in that we were in sync as a unit, the introvert extrovert thing notwithstanding, mm-hmm. in terms of how we wanted to explore the world, and that really is a is a great start.
1: Yeah, I could see that. Wow, I didn't know that that your family had gone on those trips too. That was a great like scaffolding of that over time. Um, so. What is your advice to families who are considering doing something like this, but it just feels really big and undo, you know, undoable, or they feel like they don't have, you know, some people feel like they don't really have like a right to, or they don't dare to say like, I am choosing this with my life. I'm going to make a radical departure from normal and do something really amazing on my bucket list. You know, like, what would you tell a person who's kind of, I don't know if I can do this.
2: I think the first thing to recognize is that you can do smaller bites. Nine months just happened to be what worked for us. You can do a month. You can do a summer. You can, you know, there's there's no law against taking your kids out of school and bringing them back six weeks later as long as you fulfill the homeschooling requirements, mm-hmm. right? And we had this great moment. I was talking about taking the kids to India when they were really young. And so they would miss 12 or 14 days of school, which made them chronic truants <laughs> in Chicago. Chicago had this rule that unless it was a family emergency or an illness, you couldn't miss school. But the principal, to his credit of the elementary school, said, well, of course they should go to India. You know, they'll learn so much more there. And and but the, the Chicago public school rule was that they would have to repeat the grade. They'd have to repeat. Whatever they were in like fourth and first grade, if they missed 12 days of school and went to India. So he said to the principal, like, what are you going to do? And he said, well, first of all, I don't think the district will ever catch them. But more important, he said, as principal, yes, they will have to repeat a grade. And we're like, ah. he said, but as principal, I can promote any student to the next grade at any time. Oh. So in worst case, they start first grade again. And then 20 minutes into first grade, they become a second grader. Oh, I love the rule breakers. Right. If you're in an environment that's supportive of learning. So with online learning, you know, you can unenroll and re-enroll and they're going to learn more. So you just, you do have to understand the mechanics of what you're doing. Obviously, if you do it on summer break, it's much easier. You do, I think, have to understand how long it takes to plan the leaving, as we've discussed. It's not the travel. You really got to think about the schooling, the housing, the budget, the jobs, the pets, um, none of which is overwhelming alone, but the pieces, you just kind of have to take them one at a time. And so I guess my advice would be just be incremental, just kind of solve one of those Mm -hmm. challenges at a time, figure out how long you can afford, understand the dynamics, and then recognize, you you also have to pick your comfort zone in terms of where you travel. I mean, for some people, you know, Europe is all they want to tackle. They, you know, they don't really want to be in a place where they're going to get bit by a sand fly and get leishmaniasis. And I totally get that. On the other hand, some people, I love going to places like Rwanda and Madagascar. And, you know, CJ, I think was six when he met his first military dictator. You know, so I think everything is a learning experience. Um, so find your comfort zone, bite off as much as you think you can chew, Plan far in advance and don't let the planning overwhelm you. Just take one challenge at a time.
1: And talk about another really practical detail is like your physical. I I feel like you need to kind of physically fit to do something like this. Like you're carrying a backpack or you're, you know, you got to fit all that stuff in there. It's probably pretty heavy. Like you need to kind of train a little bit for this trip.
2: Yeah, so although more of the training is just not packing too much okay. rather than poking up so you can carry all that stuff. We did have one rule. We kind of let people take what they wanted to take, but the rule was you had to put everything in one pack that you could carry and still have, and have a little backpack too for reading stuff and have one, one hand free. So you had to be completely mobile while carrying all of your stuff. And the reason is, like you just can't go through a bus station in Myanmar if you've got five bags each right. like so th- you know three of them are going to disappear fairly quickly <laughs> and you're just going to be lost and sweating the bags so that was the logistical you can put as much as you want in it but you're going to have to carry it so yes the planning i guess we did kind of take for granted that we were relatively fit we you know none of us is like a world class athlete but we do like to hike and walk so mm-hmm. none of that was a real challenge and if it were by the time we were three or four weeks into it, we did so much walking that we would have gotten fit fairly fast. Cause we, we love walking. We love wandering, but yeah, the the planning around what you're going to take is important. Um, we, we had some decisions to make around electronics, for example, that was mm-hmm. one of the big decision points. Electronics are good in that they help with the homeschooling. There's a lot less fighting. If you got more laptops, mm-hmm. people were always fighting over converters. Those cheap little things that put the two prongs into the three, like, why we didn't buy more of those, I don't know, because that you know, eighty percent of fights were over adapters. Um, <laughs> but of course, you know, laptops are expensive. They can get broken. They can get stolen. So I think in the end we decided on two laptops, which allowed, you know we still had to share and squabble over those. Everybody had a phone, which is but, but without a calling plan, which meant that we could text if we had Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. which helps a lot for staying in touch. And it also allowed the children. To stay in touch with their friends. I think it's unfair to disappear for nine months and say you're not going to be on your devices because they'll just resent you forever. So they were always using their phones to stay in touch by Snapchat or texting or what have you. Uh, and then you know, thankfully, we never lost or broke any of those things, but that is a risk, I think, when you're traveling with them. Everything else was replaceable or super cheap.
1: Yeah, that those are those are that's some good. Advice. I'm glad you never lost any of your devices. Um, you guys just seem like such a fun family. It sounds like a great, a great time. Um, so if we could just shift a little bit, because you're a professor, uh, I wanted to ask you, a lot of what we talk about in this podcast is alternatives to K-12 education, and a lot of worries that parents have about choosing a different path is college right um w- whether that's accurate or not they're worried about it so have you had experience of having students that were alternatively schooled and how did you like could you kind of talk a little bit about that compared yeah, to so traditionally I've had schooled kinds children? of
2: experiences so i've had students who were homeschooled all the way through high school I've had some great students that was in graduate school and those folks predictably enough, are self-starters and intellectually curious. And um, But you know, had you not told me, I probably wouldn't have known that. So it wasn't like they stood out. But once they told me about their experience, it made sense. I remember having one student, one of my favorite students actually, whose parents were just complete hippies, self-described by her. And they just started their own school. They just kind of said like, hey, we're going to have a school and some people are going to come and they did it, you know, commune style with other people. And that I never would have known because I think she probably rebelled a little. She was actually fairly conventional. Um, although it's not exactly what you're describing, I would say some of my best students at Dartmouth are military veterans
1: mm. who
2: served for three or four years, either as enlisted, usually as enlisted folks, and then came back at a later age to college. And they just bring so much more maturity and love of learning to the task. I I think, you know, people can choose their own path, but I I would urge as many people as possible to take a gap year
1: Mm -hmm.
2: with just one form of being unconventional because too many of the students I see are burned out or they just feel like they've been running on this education treadmill for too long. And anything that helps them get off that treadmill and see education for what it is, what it's supposed to be, which is learning, Mm-hmm. I think it does them real service when they get to a college environment.
1: That's some great, that's a great um, reflection. Thank you very much. And are you finding, like I was speaking with Esther Wojcicki, who, I don't know if you know who she is, they call her like the godmother of Silicon Valley. Her, she's famous because her one of her daughters is the CEO of YouTube and the other one is the founder of 23andMe. And the other one oh, is like wow. a cart, like a, the cardiac chief of something at some hospital in San Francisco. I don't remember, but anyway, amazingly successful daughters. And um, so she wrote a book called how to raise successful people. And we were talking and she says like, at, I think Berkeley or Stanford that she's, there's like a class called adulting because so many children are well, not children, but young adults oh, yes, are getting to,
2: <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's a dean there, famously, who's written about it. Yeah, yeah. Julie
1: lithgott Hames, who wrote yes. How to Raise an Adult, and so yes. it's like they come and they can't do their laundry or do anything for themselves. So, do, are you finding that trend also as being like you and I are kind of Gen X? Are you finding that this generation is a little bit less capable and independent because they've had a different parenting experience or educational yes, experience? Yes, and it's
2: not. It's not just parenting. There's a a really good book called The Coddling of the American American Mind. Mind. Mm -hmm. And it's all the social structures as well. If you compare like the way I grew up, I played sports all the time, but it was on the side yard. And to get it, you go around the neighborhood, knock on doors, you know, make up your field, play until dinner. If there's a fist fight, you figure it out or else you're going to have to go in. It was totally unstructured. So kids now are playing sports but there's a league and there are coaches and there's a snack. And so I think parents are doing more if we're to generalize, but also there's less unstructured time. We certainly less time just off the grid entertaining yourself. And I do think that you see, well, first of all, you see more anxiety among students. I don't think it's very healthy at all. Um, But I I also do think that you, you have some students who just, are, are less capable of figuring things out. And I would say probably as a parent, I just went to the total other extreme. My kids would tell you that my most common answer to any question is figure it out. Like, you know, <laughs> yes. like How do you do this? i figure it out. You know, like, and because uh, either I don't know or I don't care, or if I do know and, don't, and care, I'd like you to be able to do it on your own. So I'm a, a big proponent. Now, obviously if kids have special needs or if they need, certain kinds of emotional support, but if it's just your run of the mill question about how you buy a ticket for the skiway, like, you know what? <laughs> you can use Google just as well as I can. Yeah, um, and you know how to read. Also, you know, so. know, I like to think that they're they're better served by developing those skills. And it does get to the maturity piece. I mean, part of what sets my veterans apart from the other students is they've been out there doing these kinds of things, living on their own, keeping a, a budget, and that does make them more capable adults.
1: That's an excellent answer. Thank you so much. Um, Okay, great. Well, my final question is always about a metaphor. So could you think of a metaphor to compare like a traditional conventional K through 12 experience to what your student, what your children experience in your time on the road?
2: Yes, our journey uh, was a wandering afternoon where we didn't, we weren't setting out, if we had any destination, it was a very loose destination, but the, the, the learning was all about the journey and we never quite knew what we were gonna encounter, but we knew that the journey would be interesting, fun, enjoyable, maybe scary a little bit, but I'm a big believer in the journey, not the destination. And that would be true by the way in a conventional education as well, that stop focusing on the test and what you need to know for this and just step back and try and appreciate why we're reading this book, why we're studying this subject. Uh, so for uh, the metaphor for me is always something related to the journey.
1: The journey, okay, that's great. Well- Charles, thank you so very much for being on the podcast today. I know our audience really appreciates everything that you said. Um, of course, we're going to have everything in the show notes, but if somebody just wants to go right away and find out how to get in touch with you and see all of your wonderful things, what URL would they go to?
2: They just go to charleswheeland.com.
1: Okay, fantastic. And
2: everything I do is consolidated there. Everything from the political reform to the books, it's all there.
1: Great. Well, I'm sure I could talk to you all day. I know there's so many amazing things that you're into that are really, really interesting. Thanks for narrowing it down for us today and focusing on your epic gap year with your family.
2: Well, I'm sorry, since I know now that you're in El Salvador, it just makes me want to be there too. Like the travel bug never goes away.
1: Hey, anytime, like I'm gonna connect with you on LinkedIn. If you come this way, we're really hospitable and we'd love to show you around. I know,
2: and that is part of the fun (laughs) thing about travel too, is you do make friends around the world. I mean, one of our favorite adventures was in Mumbai with people we'd met in Chicago and they went back home to India and it was just lovely to drop into their life. So uh, be careful, I might show up.
1: Ah, no, I love it, it's great. Thank you so, so much. Say hi to your family.
0: Terrific. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The New Schools Podcast. Tell a friend. Previous episodes and show notes, including any books or websites our guests recommend, can be found at thenewschools.com. If you're a parent who is looking for a new school for your family, send us a message. We would love to help. We can answer questions, share the resources we have, and help you get in touch with people in your area who are on the same path, determined to provide their kids with the best education. It's wildly important work. Thank you for doing it. And we'll see you next time.